Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So, as I mentioned before, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the idea of doing a show about cricket. Uh, The idea being, of course, that cricket is a sport that nobody outside the world of cricket understands, but has uh, an awful lot of people playing it, watching it, paying attention to it. But if you're not one of those people, you don't get it. Uh, Well, we're doing something else that's almost the same, but much, much newer than uh, cricket. We're doing a show about uh, eSports. eSports, which we will attempt to explain to you in just a second, uh, seem to have a rising audience. This is essentially uh, the business of watching or the, the act of watching people play what you or I might crudely refer to as a video game or a computer game or maybe a multiplayer online game, uh, watching people play that game on obviously a much bigger screen than the one that they're playing it on. So um, it, it, you might be surprised to know that it is a enough, enough of a rising sport that American colleges and universities are interested in having uh, e-athletes uh, be there and form, uh, well, it's sort of a club sport, I think, right now, but um, form groups to, to play as teams representing that university. Uh, you might be surprised that the industry itself, the industry of e-sports, not the games that we every, everybody pays money for, but e-sports, this whole business of turning it into a spectator sport, may have grown as big as a $1 billion worldwide industry. There are uh, hundreds of millions of people uh, who watch it. Um, They are, for the most part, not in the United States, or at least they are preponderantly in the Asia-Pacific countries. But uh, I'm getting ahead of the story. We need to introduce you to the guests who know so much more. Oh, that's the one thing that I do want to say. This will be one of those shows where I have to sort of begin by confessing. I just, you know, I, I, I... I try to know about a lot of things, but I also try to know when I don't know about something. (laughs) And this is something I don't know anything about. And it's almost axiomatic that over the course of this show, I will use terms wrong or I will ask some wildly, blindly ignorant question that anybody with the most medieval familiarity with online gaming would know the answer to. Uh, or would know was a flawed premise. So I apologize in advance. Be patient. I think I'm probably sitting in a position pretty similar to a lot of the listeners. All right, let me tell you who's here. T.L. Taylor, sociologist and professor of comparative media studies uh, and writing at MIT, author of several books, including, very relevantly, Raising the Stakes, Esports and the Professionalization of Computer Gaming. And her upcoming book is Watch Me Play Twitch and the, oh, Watch Me Play Twitch and the Rise of Game Live Streaming. See, I'm already revealing my inadequacies. Also with us right now is Christina Kelly, writer, founder of Voice of Esports and former esports content editor for ESPN and Blizzard Entertainment. You can find her work at ChristinaJKelly.com. So T.L. Taylor, I'm going to get going with you. Uh, I have uh, crudely attempted to define esports. I'm sure you can give me a much more nuanced uh, explanation of what it is we're talking about here. 
Yeah, great. Uh, it's terrific to be here. Um, so eSports is, has been around for decades, and you can basically think of it as formalized competitive play around computer games, uh, whether that's consoles or even going back to the arcade days or PC gaming. And it, basically, if you think about how com, you know, competition in gaming is something that animates everything from sports to computer games, eSports is really when that gets formalized and turns into competitions that are tournaments, have matches, maybe even have prize pools. Um, so, I mean, in, in a way, one of the things that we have to do cognitively, I think, is adjust our thinking about this, right? For a lot of people, people like me, what we're the thing that we're talking about um any kind of electronic gaming um multiplayer online gaming for people like me that's something that you do when you're not really doing something right uh, i think of it as you know you're not exercising you're not doing your homework you're not doing your job you're doing this other thing um and so we need to cognitively shift into a mode where no no this is a very specific thing that you're doing, not a way of passing time in between two actual things. Do you see the distinction I'm making or making any yeah. sense at all? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great distinction, and I think it's one of the things I was most struck by when I started interviewing and talking to people who were really competing on high levels in games is they played very differently than me in a lot of ways. You know, I, I do play, sounds like you, to kind of zone out, chill out, relax, Um in the same way competitive athletes will you know have an intensity of focus redoing things over and over again to get tactics right improvisation um, the kind of psychological skills that it require you re, you need to operate at a high level esports professionals are doing all those things as well so they are really playing in some ways in a very different way than most of us so um, before we bring Christina on board, let's go way back in time. As you say, uh, TL, this, um, this whole idea isn't all that new. We can go all the way back to 1983. You might be surprised by the voice you're going to hear. This is Starcade, a video arcade game show, a game show for today. And here's our host, Alex Trebek. Thank you, Kevin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Starcade, a show that features some of today's most popular video arcade games and some of the newest ones as well. As usual on the show, we have two enterprising young players who think they can handle these machines quite well, and I'm sure they're anxious to demonstrate their game-playing skills. So let's get right to it and meet them. Rich, would you tell the folks something about you? Well, I don't know who that guy is, but he's clearly going nowhere. Um, so, TL, this is so. This is back in. I mean, once again, I'm not too great with the terminology here, but that all sounds very eight bit, right? I mean, this is sort of very early kinds of uh, of video games. Yeah, it, I love that you you pulled that. So it's fa this fantastic television show uh, called Starcade, where they actually tried to broadcast people competing, uh, playing arcade games, and you know, now we're in a moment, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, where Platforms like Twitch have brought broadcasting esports to the masses, um, but we can see there's been this interest in both esports and broadcasting it for for many many decades now. Well, let's bring uh, Christina into the mix. Uh, Christina Kelly, um, like many things that permeate American popular culture these days, this has its its biggest kind of volcanic uprising in South Korea, the way I understand it. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, thanks very much for having me, Colin. It's great to be here. It's also great to be here with T.L. Taylor, who's one of my heroes and really an important voice in the scene. Um, so that's that's awesome. Uh, yeah, so South Korea. So uh, in 2008, about a decade ago, I was in South Korea 
um, on a study abroad program when I was at Harvard. And uh, that was the height uh, at that point of the of the StarCraft Brood War professional gaming phenomenon. So StarCraft is this game that was uh, created by Blizzard Entertainment, one of my former employers, back in 1998. And... There was this perfect storm in 1998 where this this American company releases this uh, this kind of cutting edge multiplayer strategic game, and then at the same time, all the way across the world in Asia, there's this financial crisis going on where uh, all of a sudden all these kind of men are out of work, and then the Korean government kind of uh, decides on this new information technology policy and starts laying down all this broadband in Seoul. And then all of these internet cafes start popping up. Uh, there are a lot of uh, people who don't really have much to do. They start going to these internet cafes, maybe first to, you know, check email or something. But there's this new online enabled multiplayer game that's just that's so hot and so strategic and so competitive and interesting. And they all start playing it. And uh, because Korean culture is very competitive, very achievement oriented, you know, very, very about like uh, developing and proving skill, this starts to grow into this, uh, this phenomenon where you have these, uh, these players who are rising to the top of you know, their local internet cafe scene. This starts to grab the attention of these, these telecom companies and these people in Korean industry who see the potential of like, wow, this is something that people are really into. This is a game that's really popular. You know, this is, this, this is something that looks like a sport. Let's you know, get it on television. Let's get it organized. Let's uh, start sponsoring teams and and and, uh, and putting the putting tournaments on television. So uh, by you know 2000 or so, you have the Korean Esports Association, which is this quasi-governmental regulatory body um, that's uh, sort of uh, passing out e uh, pro player licenses so people can play in these tournaments that are televised on these 24-hour TV channels, and you have. Uh, players that are that are getting fan clubs of hundreds of thousands of people, and it's uh, it just it just becomes massive. So that was all the way back in 2000, and uh, it was really kind of the first place. It was like the birthplace, uh, in many ways, of modern professional competitive video gaming, and um, uh, we're still seeing that huge influence today. Um, and uh, that's that's for me at least uh, where a lot of it started. Of course, there are other there are other places in the world, you know, in in North America and other places in the world where competitive gaming also started rising. But it really took on that first very professionalized uh, sort of a, a high production entertainment sports like quality in South Korea. And T.L. Taylor, you write that South Korea is still seen as kind of a, a promised land for uh, this whole idea of pro e-sports or pro uh, gaming and, and kind of a techno utopia, I think is a <laughs> phrase that you use. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, well, I really love how Christina told the history because it has been the thing for, for decades now where South Korea, especially in the two, early 2000s, was really seen as the place everybody who wanted to grow esports as an industry look towards. And what I love about the, the picture Christina painted for us is that idea often missed how there were really important 
policy, structural, economic, and cultural factors that went into making up South Korea as the kind of mecca for esports it was. Um, so one of the things we're seeing now is, you know, places like North America and Europe catching up on some of those fronts. And, of course, then you get the growth of the industry. But, uh, TL, the, right now in South Korea, if you are, and actually this is something Christina knows about too, she's profiled some of these people, but if you're at the top of the pyramid there, you're kind of a mobbed at the airport kind of celebrity? <laughs> yeah, and I think this is a part of the ways in which esports has also intersected media and youth culture in South Korea. So, you know, we're starting to see that level of fandom here, but in part because in South Korea, you know, esports has now been broadcast for decades. Um, being a media presence, you know, you were a kind of esport athlete in the same way we have, you know, popular athletes here who would equally be mobbed at the airport. Um, that was able to take off in South Korea because of all these other factors. So, yeah, it continues to be a really important part of the esports story, though I would say just even in the last five, seven years, things have really changed in North America and Europe where it's catching up quite a bit. So, Christina, uh, as I recall, they had this other thing in South Korea recently called the Olympics. Uh, but one of the things that esports did was sort of latch itself on to the Olympics a little bit with something called the Intel Extreme Masters Pyeongchang Tournament. Tell us about that. What was that like? Yeah, so this was an event uh, where the there were, there were qualifiers for the event that were held late last year. And then the main tournament itself was held uh, live in person in Pyeongchang about a little less than a week before the opening ceremony. And so it was this, uh, the main tournament was this 18-person tournament with representation from uh, from countries all over the world. So the representation was kind of fine-tuned. So you have, you know, certain number of, of players from, you know, North America and Europe and, and uh, Oceania, Af Africa, uh, South America, et cetera. And so they played... Um, in this uh, in this special tournament that was broadcast uh, live on Twitch, and had the support of the uh, of the Olympic community, and uh, it was it was uh, and the tournament was in StarCraft II, which was which is the sequel to uh, StarCraft Brood War, which is the the game that I mentioned in that launched in 1998 and kind of started the whole thing. So this is uh, StarCraft II, which is very popular around the world. Um, and uh, it was it was a really wonderful tournament. It was wonderful to have, uh, you know, StarCraft, this StarCraft tournament in Korea, which has, you know, a very special resonance. Um, and the one of the amazing thing, oh, uh, $150,000 prize pool. Hmm. Uh, and one of the amazing things was that it was won by this woman named uh, Sasha Hostin, also known as Scarlet. And um, she uh, she's a Canadian. She's, uh, I think, around 20 years old. She's pretty young. And she beat this legendary Korean player uh, who goes by SOS in order to win the tournament. Um, she's uh, basically the the uh, she's one of the um, uh, top professional female players that you can really name in esports. Hey, Christina, and, while you're on that topic, let me just ask you, are are the sexes divided here. I mean, there's really no reason why a man wouldn't play a woman in esports that I'm aware of. So, are, are they categorized separately? Um, so, uh, in StarCraft in Korea in the early 2000s, there was a separate women's league, but that sort of died out. So, since then, there hasn't, uh, and there are 
women's tournaments or leagues at sort of a lower, more amateur level, like mm. the Iron Lady tournaments. Mm. But in in the professional leagues, like no, there isn't like a, a separate or special uh, women's league in in StarCraft or in most esports. Yeah, it wouldn't make um, any sense. Um, so let me ask you yeah. another thing. Um, just so that people don't feel as though this thing is somehow or other relegated to um, Asia Pacific countries. Well, we just pointed out that a Canadian won the big tournament, but but also, Christina, it's beginning to attract interest. And by interest, I actually mean capital in the form of some American professional sports team owners, names that would be familiar to the average American sports. Sports fan, right? Oh my goodness, absolutely. So in early 2015, there was a confidential presentation to the NBA Board of Governors about the rise of esports. So then after uh, uh, thereafter, you start to see especially NBA people um, start to really take an interest in the space. You know, you have uh, Rick Fox founded Echo Fox. You have Shaquille O'Neal invested in this team Energy. You have Gordon Hayward um, became the first NBA player to sign an esports endorsement deal. You have Jeremy Lin who inked an, a global exclusive endorsement deal for a Chinese Dota team. You have Jonas Jerebko who bought a uh, who bought the Renegades Counter Strike team. I mean. Uh, you just uh, and that's like just in the NBA. You also have uh, in the uh, the Overwatch League, which launched um, this past uh, December and January. You have uh, franchise teams that are owned by Bob Kraft of the Patriots, uh, Jeff Wilpon, who was the C- uh, the CEO of the Mets, um, the Cronkies, who own the Denver Nuggets and various other sports teams. I, and um, let's see, there's uh, the Miami Heat. They have a they have a franchise down in Florida. I mean. The, the sports investment has just been piling on, and it's really awesome to see that. All right. Uh, you might be now wondering, curious person that you are, uh, what does this sound like? I can't show you what it looks like because this is radio, uh, but we're going to give you a, a little taste anyway. Uh, uh, this is a live Defense of the Ancients 2. You remember that one? Tournament between uh, teams Rave and Ninjas in Pajamas, otherwise known as NIP, uh, being announced in real time in front of a large crowd. Take a look at Dire Vision here. They don't have much into the base, but they do have lane control in top and mid. That makes things difficult. Lift, whoa, he goes down fast. Hankin skin comes in. 30 HP. He barely lives. Batrider, though, he's not going to be so lucky. There's a dunk. Limp's in trouble. Hanskin gets the grave. Oh, no. Limp's dead. There's your Aegis. Era comes in. He'll take a lot of damage. Chrissy on the backside. Waiting for the slide to come up. Era just doing so much damage. J.O. gets locked out. Ember Spirit, the only one left alive. Here the buybacks come. One on Zeus. One on the bench. Era. Oh, my gosh. The damage. Lasso comes out on him. Oh, Chrissy. He's in trouble. He's a pig. He's dead. Rapier's on the ground. It's over. NIP do it after 77 minutes. All right. Well, that certainly paints a picture in my mind. It's like listening to Vince Scully do baseball. It's like you're there at the game. Um, so, you know, T.L. Taylor, let me ask you this. And this is probably a stupid question, but I, I've specialized in those. It's a sort of what is this like question. Now, you know, when I think about this, I think a little bit about Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky. So, I mean, we're not completely unfamiliar with the idea of the world being riveted by the spectacle of two seated people playing a game. Um, uh, on the other hand, when you listen to that, it sounds much more like we're watching an NBA game fused with, you know, maybe a WWE wrestling match or something. I mean, I, I don't know. Is there a way to sort of make an analogy or answer a kind of what is it like? What is it the most similar to? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, it's not a dumb question at all, and I think part of what's important to understand about esports is, you know, different games play differently and will have a kind of different spectatorship experience. So there are certainly games that are tactical and strategic in a way that would make a lot of sense visually to people who are fans of chess. Uh, there, you know, are card-based games. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. There are also games, though, that, you know, are – and those are one-on-one -on -one games often, so they often have a different feel and pacing. But they're the, – the Dota that clip that you just played, they're often, you know, five-person teams going against each other in these big stadiums. And those those can feel very similar to if you're, you know, attending a basketball game or a football game or a soccer game. You know, you're – you know, increasingly these are played in large arenas. I think there was just an event that happened in Sydney this last weekend that had had something like 18,000 people turn out for it, and you're there with all the other fans, and that kind of collective fandom and experience takes over where there's cheering and there's chants and there's signs and thunder sticks. So I think actually one of the things that often most surprises people, especially if they go to live events, is how familiar it can feel to traditional sports. And the only other thing I say too is, and you heard it a bit in that clip, is you know e one of the thing, one of the interesting challenges esports has had is to figure out how to make all of this intelligible to spectators. You know, there's a lot of fast action on the screen. It's it's you know, your eye usually or often can't take in the whole playing field at once. So figuring out how to do commentating and camera angles. These are all things esports has been working on for a while now. And the commentators, I think you hear in that the way part of what they do is they play on sports aesthetics and audio and pacing because that's a kind of known framework for spectators. It seems to me that, um, uh, you know, Christina, all the stuff uh, that she just talked about, all the stuff that TL just talked about is obviously very true, uh, particularly in terms of a problem that the sport would have to solve if it wanted to grow beyond its current base. It seems to be growing pretty fast anyway. But the other part of this, I would think, is the development of stars. I mean, tennis was never bigger than when there was uh, Everett and Navratilova and McEnroe and Connors and Borg, you know, and, and, and basketball is at its best when there's a Larry Bird, Magic Johnson rivalry going. And we can go on and on. And so, I mean, you've profiled at least one of the sports stars. I guess the first question I want to ask is, uh, you you, uh, you profiled Jadong Lee. Um, you know, if you watch Mookie Betts play baseball for about 20 minutes, you can tell why that he's a lot better than most people at it. And often in sports you have a term like a five-skill athlete or a four-skill athlete. Is it that way with an eSports athlete? Can you just sort of easily isolate the things that make him or her superior to the common ruck? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, frame of reference. So with sports, right, when you see a football player make an amazing catch, like an interception or that kind of thing, you look at that and think like, wow, I know physically that I cannot do that. I have a very intuitive sense of like, I cannot move that fast or jump that high or crash into a person and keep going. With esports and video games, it's a little bit different. If you don't kind of if you're if you're not a little bit familiar it can it can be a little unintuitive like oh you know 
the commentators are saying that this is a uh, this is really skilled, but uh, you know maybe I haven't played the game very much, so I'm I'm not entirely sure. Like I don't I don't really have that intuitive sense. But to to people who've been watching a little bit more and get into it a little bit more, maybe try to play the game. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for me, so I've I started playing StarCraft when I was in high school, and so by the time I got to Korea, I was pretty familiar with you know playing the game and how that feels. And I just remember you know, with Jadong, I was uh, sitting in the audience of a television studio watching um, watching him play and I was just looking at the way he was controlling his units. Starcraft is a game where you're sort of controlling an army strategically in real time, sort of like uh, three-dimensional high-speed chess. Everyone's moving at the same time. And I was just watching him control his units and I was like, wow, this is art. Like, this is beautiful. This is something that I could never do. I didn't even think was possible, but it's just gorgeous and it just compels me so uh, so completely. And that for me was part of this magic, this just like explosion of like, wow, esports is really special. This, uh, this talent, this content, um, this 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 structure here that allows players to reach these heights of skill. This is really magical, and uh, this is something that I really want to see come to life in the rest of the world. All right, we're going to take a break. Both of our very very fine guests, T. L. Taylor and Christina Kelly, will be back after said break. We're back. We're talking about the rise of esports. This is probably still something that's hard for some of you to wrap your minds around the notion that uh, hundreds of millions of people have become fans of watching other people play what you think of as video games or computer games or multiplayer online games or whatever it is that you call them. Uh, we're joined by T.L. Taylor, sociologist and professor of comparative media studies uh, and writing at MIT, author of several books, including Raising the Stakes, Esports and the Professionalization of computer gaming and her upcoming book, Watch Me Play Twitch and the Rise of Game Live Streaming. Also joining us, Christina Kelly, writer, founder of Voice of Esports and former esports content editor for ESPN and Blizzard Entertainment. Uh, you can find her work at ChristinaJKelly.com. So um, T.L. Taylor, the, the untutored among us, which would include me, um, might be a little bit surprised to find out that the the two main guests on the show are women because the other reputation that the gaming community has driven uh, heavily by the so-called Gamergate scandals uh, of a few years ago is of a very tough uh, misogynistic uh, environment. I don't know, maybe you can sort of help us kind of understand that phenomenon and, and how it either plays across or doesn't play across the world that we're talking about now. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I think as many of us are familiar with now on the heels of Gamergate, there remain really serious issues of misogyny and sexism and harassment uh, in gaming spaces. Um, and yet at the same time, women have an incredibly long history, both in gaming and esports. So while 
there still are, you know, there's not nearly enough women kind of able to play at the professional level. Esports as an industry has had women behind the scenes or in front of the camera for decades now helping build it up. And in fact, a lot of those women who were there at the beginning of the grassroots uh, scene are now in really important positions throughout the industry. I think of Kim Fan over at Blizzard, for example, who is doing tremendous work for esports. So it's really this, it's a very complicated picture um, where women are there, women are present, and we know just as a mainstream leisure activity, gaming is hitting all kinds of sectors of di different demographics. But at the high end, at professional play levels, there still are serious barriers. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that with you, TL, and then with you, Christina. But, uh, TL, let me just stay with you for a second. So maybe the advantage that a nascent sport like this has uh, is that it can try to regulate itself. I mean, you know, many of the other sports that we're familiar with grew up in much less enlightened times. So think about how long it took for baseball to integrate, for example, uh, that all, all the prejudices and, and brokenness of American society just manifested itself on the baseball diamond. Um, the gaming world kind of knows what the problem is, and, and there are at least some people who know it is a problem, so you have the advantage of kind of trying to fix the problem in its earliest stages. Tell us about Any Key. I think that's one of the uh, efforts to do this. Yeah, so AnyKey is an organization I co-direct with a fantastic woman named Morgan Romine. Morgan, was uh, she founded a really early competitive women's team called the Frag Dolls, and she also holds a Ph.D. in anthropology from UC Irvine. So we have this initiative uh, supported by Intel and ESL right now um, that is really trying to address um, issues of diversity and inclusion in esports. And you know, one of the things we do is we've we've spent a lot of time talking to women in the scene and trying to identify where kind of core barriers of entry and retention are, and then in a kind of research-driven way tackle them. And so those things range from, you know, the, the almost symbolic, um, you know, we hear, for example, women will say like, wow, the, the first time I saw a woman in a tournament or playing competitively, it inspired me to think I could do that too. So we do things like produce videos highlighting terrific women in the scene, um, all the way to thinking about codes of conduct and what does it mean, you know, how can organizations really think about these kinds of digital stadiums and digital playing fields and think about the kinds of codes of conduct that they need to have in place to, you know, prevent things like harassment or, you know, different kinds of attacks or you know, whatever's going to kind of keep people from staying and playing. All right. And so, Christina, uh, you've written about another uh, version or manifestation of this uh, in the form of the Smash community. Tell us about the Smash community. Yeah, so the Smash community is centered around this franchise of games called Super Smash Brothers by Nintendo. Um, the the community that I'm most familiar with is the Super Smash Brothers Melee community. So that's the version that was on the GameCube. It's been out for around like 16 years. So again, a pretty uh, an old game, very, you know, ancient by esports standards, basically. And so this uh, this community, for many reasons, is like very self-driven and very community conscious. So people who are involved in this community are are conscious of the need to 
just maintain a good community culture. So I'm consistently surprised and very pleased in this when I'm interacting with people in this community by people's emotional maturity, their uh, their desire to have diversity and to welcome newcomers, no matter what background they have or who they are. You know, you have uh, there were there was a really uh, cool article on sort of one of the main Smash community sites on transgender players in the community, asking them about their experiences. And there's also this uh, amazing organization called Smash Sisters, which was founded by my friends Lillian Chen and Emily Waves, who are very longtime members and competitive players and organizers in the community, which is sort of this series of competitive crew battles that happen at within the context of larger tournaments where female players get together and sort of have this friendly, you know, uh, like East Coast crew versus NorCal crew little battle against each other uh, just for fun. There's no like prizes. There's no real, there's no like individual ranking and uh, all the players are there participating in the tournament anyway. So it's not like it's so they, there's not like this, like, Oh, why can't they play against the men? It's like, right. well, they are playing against the men anyway, but yeah, this, uh, this, this or this organization and this series of events is really to sort of lower the barrier and um, get women together and just make it kind of less intimidating and and give them sort of a reason to come together and feel like hey there are other women in the scene and there are all these people that I can relate to and the best thing is that the Smash community by and large the larger community really accepts this group and supports it uh, which is wonderful to see. Um, we should mention I, I don't know if we mentioned it uh, before but when Christina was talking before about the winner of the Intel. Extreme Masters Pyeongchang Tournament. Uh, Sasha Scarlett Hostin, I believe she is, in addition to being a Canadian woman, a transgender uh, person at that. So uh, the, another sign that maybe some of these barriers are loosening a little bit. But T.L. Taylor, is it just um, uh, issues uh, of men and women and perhaps uh, uh, other kinds of expressions of gender? Or is it, I mean, I don't know, the baseball, which is, you know, supposedly gone through all of its horrible birthing pains. I don't know, last year there were players, uh, fan, there was at least one or two fans in Fenway Park yelling racial epithets at Andrew Jones, the center fielder for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, how's that working out in the gaming world? Yeah, it's a really important point for us to think about, you know, inclusion and diversity beyond just gender. Um, you know, are people of color having good spaces, being able to be present in esports? And I would say part of what's happened is because esports now has a broadcast space on platforms like Twitch where audiences can come in, hang out, and chat with each other in real time, this is sometimes where we're seeing some of the worst behavior. So a few years ago, there was a fantastic Hearthstone player playing in some finals. He was a man of color, and there was really terrible racism happening in the chat chat. And, you know, uh, it got it got paid attention to and Blizzard said they were going to work so it wouldn't happen again and try to do some more moderation. Um, but it is a persistent feature, um, especially as people are sharing their play online through these live streaming services. So it really does remain something that has to be frankly addressed uh, by organizations, by leagues and by fans themselves. You know, Christina, uh, it's hard to keep any kind of utopia going. You know, the the snakes tend to slither into paradise pretty quickly. So you've got this exciting new world where a new kind of athlete can emerge uh, and where a kind of international competition can begin to well up. Uh, but uh, as we're documenting here, there are issues uh, of identity. And uh, unsurprisingly, from anybody familiar with the history of sports, we're starting to have the equivalent of 
point shaving or match fixing here and there, right? Maybe not a lot of it, but some. Right. So match fixing in esports is a is a really interesting thing because a lot of it, at least the the very high profile cases, of course, happen in Korea first because they're they're Korea's you know sort of this forerunner, this you know, whatever's in, and the rest of the world is kind of catching up. So um, so I think the uh, the biggest scandal in in recent history was that of this player uh, named Lee Sung Lee Sung Hyun. Uh, who goes by life, and he was a, a StarCraft II player. He debuted in 2011 at age 14. He was the youngest professional player at the time. And then in 2012, he was he became what's called a Royal Rotor, which is he uh, won this very prestigious tournament called the GSL, the Global StarCraft II League, the first time that he entered. And that was like a huge deal. So he just kept winning. He was this amazing player. He was like, it was he was this incredible rising star. Everybody loved him him and then uh in 2016 there were rumors that he had a gambling problem that he lost twenty thousand dollars in a single night and then um a couple months later this report came out that he and another player were implicated in throwing two matches in 2015 um and apparently he earned about sixty two thousand dollars for throwing these matches which is a pretty hefty sum uh, in Korea and, you know, compared to uh, some of the, the prizes for some of the, especially like the smaller tournaments. So uh, that, you know, that was just this huge blow. Um, he was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment, uh, fined $58,000, stripped of all his titles. And it was, uh, and actually when I was at ESPN, we had this sort of um, the superlatives, you know, esports player of the year, et cetera, for, um, for 2016, and we named him as the biggest disappointment of the year, mm. just because he was such a he was such a bright and promising star, and then he fell so far. So that's kind of uh, the most the biggest uh, the biggest match fixing um, scandal that I can think of in recent memory. But there's also been you know there's a big scandal in uh, Counter Strike in North America in 2014, collusion between teams um, related to you know be- a betting site. And there's been uh, there's been other match fixing issues in uh, StarCraft in, in Korea as well. It's part of growing and, uh, pains. It's part of growing pains. And at some point, I'm sure there'll be the esports version of the musical Damn Yankees. Hey, we have to take a quick break here. We first of all want to thank Christina Kelly, such a great guest, writer, founder of uh, Voice of Esports. You can find her work at ChristinaJKelly.com. When we come back, we'll have T.J. Taylor and a new guest, someone to tell us a little bit about how this plays out at the collegiate level. So beautiful, you got me thinking, wow, you make me feel invincible, just like a Super Mario star, no scribble, not whatever do, you are my favorite work of art, like a portal companion to... We're back. Usually uh, we have Wolfie saying thank yous uh, here. Uh, I just realized Wolfie's not here today. So Betsy Kaplan's running the board uh, with help from Joe Cost. Thank you so much. Uh, Josh Nalea is the person who conceived of uh, and has produced this show. Carlos Mejia is tweeting or something in there, I think. Uh, and so, you, by the way, you can tweet at us at WNBRCollin on the Twitters. And people have tweeted at us, too. I want to see if I can get to some of those tweets uh, here in this segment. Uh, who else do I have to thank? Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Jeff Bridges. And tomorrow on the show, we've got two very funny writers coming on. Sloan Crosley has been with us in the past and Andy Borowitz. And we'll talk about just the whole art 
and practice of writing humor, like right on the page where you can read it. Um, what a radical idea. All right. So we're still talking about eSports. T.L. Taylor, who I think I might have misidentified going on to the last break. T.L. Taylor, sociologist and professor of comparative media studies and writing at MIT, uh, author of several books, including Raising the Stakes, eSports and the Professionalization of Computer Gaming. And I'll try to say the title right this time. Watch Me Play, Twitch and the Rise of Game Live Streaming. Uh, joining us also is Michael Brooks. Founder and Executive Director at NACE, the National Association of Collegiate Esports. So, um, Michael, first of all, um, your organization is one of three national governing bodies, as I understand it, for sports uh, competitions and players on college campuses. How many schools are getting involved in the cultivation and, and promotion uh, of esports here in the U.S.? Oh, you know, you know, Michael could probably answer the question better if I'd actually put him up on the board here. Okay, let's start over. How many schools are actually doing this, Michael Brooks? Um, so right now, within our membership, uh, we have 81 institutions. Um, those are all varsity programs, uh, so institutions that have esports at the same level as they do for any other traditional sport on campus. Wait, so when we say varsity programs, uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, once again, this is probably something that the uh, untutored, unfamiliar listener may be having trouble wrapping their minds <laughs> around. So when, is it a varsity program the way, say, football, baseball, basketball, volleyball are varsity programs, or is it more what are sometimes called club sports? Uh, it is varsity as in what you can typically think of your institution when they're competing against another college or university. Uh, I mean, these are students that are scholarships specifically uh, under eSports to be there to compete and represent their institutions. They have dedicated eSport arenas, which is really just a, a souped-up gaming or computer lab uh, on campus. They have a coach, an eSports director, who are employees of the institution to uh, administer and uh, coach and teach and how these students to be better. Um, they have uniforms. Uh, I mean, they uh, they travel uh, to some degree. They uh, compete against other schools all across the country. Um, it, it very much is a, a varsity team in the traditional sense. So uh, esports are a little bit different from most of the sports that we could think of, um, uh, Michael. And and I think a lot of us who have prejudices about this, they, those prejudices are fed by, say, a novel like the novel The Knicks, which came out a couple of years ago, which depicted uh, multiplayer online addicts, you know, as these people whose fingernails were falling out because they never ate any green vegetables and, you know, their, their lives were falling apart because the games were so addictive. Um, how do you deal with that at the collegiate level? You've got people coming in if they're being recruited to the college because uh, they're so good at esports you esports seems like something that could sort of take over your life and and so can any kind of sport but in, how do you make sure they stay healthy i guess is the the question i'm asking you're right well i mean by its very nature um esports which could be any number of games different games um they're supposed to be fun right just like i'm a big basketball and college football fan myself i think that's fun it used to be a lot more fun for me to play now i, I can't quite keep up as well as i used to <laughs> um but uh the, the simple the, i guess the crux of the question there is uh, so both activities are very fun but with traditional athletics with sports uh, there's a point where you you're physically unable to continue so you you rest you do something else 
uh, unfortunately, with uh, competitive gaming with esports, I mean, it's a stationary position. You're sitting down and you're playing for hours, and you don't have that that physical exhaustion that comes with uh, a typical competition. So for us, it's very careful or very important, and we're very careful on how our schools actually administer this program. You know, who's monitoring these students? Uh, how are we tracking how long they're playing? How are we tracking their grades? Um, and there's you know, for for me, when we look at it, uh, we believe that the varsity component is is so much better because you have uh, other adults in the room, adults who are employed and responsible uh, not only for the success competitively of their students, uh, but also their their academic success and their overall um, health and well-being. Which uh, having those checks and balances in place, being able to restrict the number of hours students play a day. Um, making sure that they actually go to the gym and work out in cardio or weight training. Uh, all of those components and the structure that comes with it has been, in, in our view, tremendously successful in building up a, a healthy uh, student experience. So let me uh, bring back T.L. Taylor now. Um, so T.L., you know, when we think of college sports, I mean, if you go down a few rungs to maybe sort of volleyball and fencing and wrestling and maybe some of the programs that are constantly in danger of being cut by colleges, um, you know, it might be one thing. But at the top level, there's there are a lot of concerns that we have about those athletes right now uh, that they're being uh, put through the school without sufficient academic challenges. Graduation rates uh, may be low. Uh, academic challenges may be low. They may graduate without the real life skills and, and academic skills they need to function in the real world if they're not going to keep doing the sport uh, that they're doing, which the vast majority of uh, of them uh, will not be able to continue doing at a professional level. Meanwhile, the universities in the NCAA are making insane amounts of money. And like, everybody's making money. Coaches are making money. Universities are making money. The NCAA makes money. The athletes don't make any money. Um, so, T.L. Taylor, I'm wondering, as a sociologist looking at all this, what are your concerns? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up because I feel like both as a sociologist but as you know, as a professor, somebody who's very invested in what's happening on a college campus and the life of our students, um, there's, of course, real fantastic possibilities right now with the growth of esports and its commercialization. But there's also real risks, and I think it's incumbent on us to really be thinking about how to make sure not just to protect our students, but to inform them, to help them think through. I mean, students are, you know, often now signing contracts, making media deals. And also, as you point out, making sure folks have a way to do something that's productive and satisfying and will make them happy after college if a call, if an esports career doesn't shake out. I mean, we know much like, you know, traditional athletics, it's very few folks who actually go on to have high-paying, high-profile careers. We need to make sure esports students are also, you know, getting a – bigger picture of the world and again the risk right now is there's a lot of money pouring into the scene and those of us in colleges and universities i think have to keep an eye on something more than the commercial trajectory for what's happening on our campuses so michael brooks we're, we're, we don't have a lot of time left but we have some time left and i think i want to hear your response to all that although i think the other thing we have to say is the bigger the, the purse gets the more the money comes in the more the eye of Mordor in the form of Mark Emmert in the NCAA is going to turn your way. So whatever safeguards you're trying to build in right now, I'm not sure how long they're going to get to stay, but maybe in two or three minutes you can try to comment as much as possible on all that. 
Sure. Well, it's as of right now, it, it's highly unlikely that one, the NCA is interested in, in the knee sports right now, or, or two, would be uh, open to or able um, to actually bring esports into their existing competitive environment. And uh, I mean, there's some backstory there. So, NACE is a membership association, similar in structure to the NCAA or the NAI in the U.S. Um, that means we, at the end of the day, we report to our institution's presidents. Um, and as you're probably well aware, within NACE and within the NCA, there's a lot of crossover. And so we're all pretty well of you know other, each other's opinions on it. The, the simple fact is, when it comes to esports, uh, there is uh, just hard issues at play that don't allow it to exist within an existing traditional athletic association. Um, there's issues, significant issues around amateurism, significant issues around monetization, uh, huge issues around Title IX, uh, and specifically the bylaws the NCA has on top of what Title IX actually says. Um, all of those, unless they're to make seismic changes to esports, which and there's enough polls out there to say it's like overwhelmingly 95, 90 percent uh, of the public, of administrators in this space are against NCA involvement. Um, I don't know if it would behoove them to try to enter into this esports space. I mean, that's the reason why NAC exists in the first place, was the institutional thought um, that something separate has to be created outside of the existing tradition that came with traditional athletics. Um, and I can go into a lot more detail, but we're going to need a lot more time to go into each of those subpoints. Right. Um, well, but generally, in, in, those are the issues. Yeah, in about 45 seconds, though, maybe just uh, uh, how about that the whole issue of kind of um, a- academic um, uh, performance, you know, making sure these uh, players don't just graduate after four years of playing video games? Not that other students aren't doing the same thing. <laughs> well, I mean, that's when we say video games. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, those who are gamers, we're, we're talking about the majority of all college students. We're talking about the majority of all high school students. I mean, they go as we go down, the numbers actually just get bigger and bigger. So we're actually talking about the majority of all youth in the United States. Um, it, esports just represents the pinnacle of that competition, uh, the, the best in terms of skill. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh, academically for us, it's important that there are benchmarks in place, right? That we're following the path to graduation. We're looking to have them graduate in four years, and and, and as like uh, was previously said, right? The expectation for almost all of these students is that they're not going to go and play professionally. Um, they may end up in the esports industry, and certainly it is an industry with all sorts of different needs from all different uh, business avenues. Um, but uh, really, it's to graduate with a strong degree from a strong university and go and conquer the rest of their lives, or right? have a great adventure and live the, the, the best that they are able to, with esports having been the tool, the vehicle to get them there. All right, Michael Brooks, i got to go. I've got a history of Donkey Kong exam coming up. <laughs> thanks to you. Thanks to T.L. Taylor. Thanks to Christina Kelly, too, uh, and my team, Josh and Carlos and Betsy Kaplan. Never seen him fall, that death of a bag.